First of all, I'd like to tell you from both Sarah and myself how appreciative we are uh, of the effort that's being put in. It's rare that we have a retreat where there's so many people who are really new to the practice. And we know that it can be quite difficult uh, to just sit and walk and sit and walk. And uh, everyone's been very cooperative and attempting to follow the rules of IMS and stay within the framework of practice. And we appreciate that. So what have you been practicing since Friday night? I'm sure a lot of different things. There's an ancient uh, uh, Indian teaching story of an enlightened yogi who was also the king. The king was an adept at meditation. And someone came, uh, was quite impressed with this accomplishment, being able to be both a king and also uh, a practitioner with some depth. So this person came to the king and said that he would like to study with the king. Would that be possible? And the king said, okay. First assignment is to go through each and every room in the palace with a pot of hot oil on your head, balancing it, and not spill one drop. So the student did that went through this large palace and covered each and every room, came back proudly and said, uh, I didn't spill a drop, as if the job were done. And then the king said, um, is anyone um, having love trysts? Any secret love trysts? I don't know. Any plots to overthrow me? I don't know. What do they think of me? Do they respect me? I don't know. Is the kitchen clean? Gee, couldn't answer one question. He said, I was so preoccupied with balancing that pot of oil on my head and not spilling a drop that I didn't notice any of that kind of stuff. So then the king said, okay, now go back and go through every room. And again, don't drop any oil. But when you come back, I'd like a full report of just what's going on here. Okay. I think we've been practicing going through all the rooms. Now, I know you've also caught a glimpse of some things. How could you not? You've had to learn about yourself. But at least officially, our main job has been not to spill any oil, to come back to that breath over and over and over and over again. <clears throat> I'd like to talk about that and then uh, a little bit about the second part, insight meditation. What you've been doing 
if we look at it in a kind of innocent way, is we've taken one event in a human being's life, the fact that each and every one of us is breathing, and we've just featured it. We've taken our full attention, and instead of going in any of the many directions we could go in, we've opted to constantly come back to this one event over and over and over and over again. And as you know, I'm pretty sure, um, the mind has a mind of its own. And even though you hear the instructions, you understand them, and you have this tremendous sincerity, you're all over the place. And the, all of these mental events have great power to pull us away, to captivate us, to cast a spell over us. So one of the things that we're learning, and you may not consider this an accomplishment, but among the ancients it was considered the first attainment. And that attainment is the cascading mind. You've attained that. I'm pretty sure that everyone of you, certainly the new folks, people who have been here for a while, already know about this. The cascading mind is what it sounds like. You've seen that your mind is like Niagara Falls. It's all over the place, pouring, and often you're helpless. Very strong conditions come up, and uh, you're taken off the breath. Breath, you don't even know where the nostrils are. Why is that an accomplishment? It sounds like a defeat. Because it's true. The starting point, the natural state of the mind, is that it's wild. And that's every human being that I've met, starting point is that way. We had a, uh, an eminent brain surgeon who came to the Cambridge Center, world famous in Boston, and he obviously had extraordinary capacity to pay attention in working on other people's brains. But when it came to his own, it was a different story. <laughs> So I'm sure all of us have realms where we're very concentrated, something we love. Perhaps it's photography or mothering or tennis or music. It could be anything. But now we're being asked to focus on ourselves. We're learning how to bring our life into focus. And in a certain way, it isn't different if you have an area of concentration some area that comes easily to you because you love to do it. The challenge is to take that kind of focus and turn it inwards and now use it to understand yourself instead of gardening or the international news or whatever it is that you love. In seeing our predicament, seeing the cascading mind, uh, we know what we're up against. We have a, a wild and unruly mind. And this is a very important turning point. Even though those of you who are just starting out, many of you are really new to meditation, you already have an important turning point. It's a fork in the road. Because when we see the cascading mind, one obvious conclusion is that it's hopeless. How will I ever be able to calm down and even experience all this peace and bliss that I read about in books and hear these people endlessly talk about? 
I might as well quit right now. It's really too difficult for me. That's one way to go. I don't advise that fork in the road. Another way to look at it is that, oh, this is uh, reality, and that's what our training is about, is bringing our life into focus. Uh, not an imaginary life, not an idealization, but our actual life. And we're starting with our actual breathing and our actual capacity to pay attention, and we learn that that perhaps is undeveloped. But help is on the way. Many, many human beings, I don't know how many, of course, countless, have been there before us. They wrote about the cascading mind thousands of years ago. So apparently, uh, even in ancient times, the human mind needed training in order to become peaceful and calm and clear and happy in and of itself. The help are... <clears throat> methods, techniques, support of the community, and so forth. Um, and I hope you take that road, that you understand that uh, in seeing your situation, that's the first step in changing anything is to see your predicament. If you don't see your predicament, where is change going to come from? And the truth is we've been living with this mind. This is the mind we've been making decisions with. People are leading whole countries with this kind of mind. <laughs> I don't know, another image that <clears throat> has always helped me is many years ago I was watching a friend's dog run after a plastic bone which had, which had uh, painted on flesh. You know, it wasn't real meat. So it was a plastic bone and plastic, in quotes, meat. And this person, the owner, threw the bone, and there the dog would go running after it, bring it back, all huffing and puffing, happy. The owner would throw it, and the dog would run again, and again, and again, and again. And I watched it. I was just amazed. Uh, I know the, the food was the owner's approval, but there was nothing on that bone. There was no nourishment. And have you seen that yet? That th the things you're running, about, running after, are they really so valuable? So nourishing for the hundredth time, rehearsing what you're going to tell this person? <laughs> Memories that have come up over and over and over and over again. What you're going to do this summer? All these dress rehearsals, scenarios, um, if they were that fulfilling, I don't think any of us would be here. There are other places to be right now. So part of learning how to settle down has wisdom in it already. It, when you read the books, it's sort of, uh, first there's ethical training. Sarah gave you a sense of that with the precepts Friday evening. And then ethical training helps us settle down and become concentrated and somehow insight grows out of that, wisdom grows out of that concentration. But the truth is they're all operative right now, they're always happening right now and even before you get very concentrated we, each one of us has wisdom available. 
uh, it's the capacity to learn from our experience and to pick courses of action that are constructive and useful and to let go of courses of action that don't work, that are futile. Little by little you may start to see that running after so many of the events of the mind does not really lead to peace. And then the flip side of that, I don't know if you've had any peace, especially those of you who are really new. Uh, If you are, then you'll have to take it. If you've not had that peace, you'll have to take this on faith. That if you keep coming back, and little by little that means less and less do you run after the bone. Remember, it's your own mind throwing these bones and it's you running after the bones that you've made up. It's all a one-person show. You're doing it all. Okay. And little by little, you may discover that if you can be with the breath a little bit more continuously, and a part of what helps that is um, some of the starch is taken out of our craving to be with all these different mental events or the strong conditionings that we have to be with them. As they lose some of their potency, it's easier to be with the breath. As you're more able to be with the breath in a more continuous way, you may find yourself simply sitting and breathing and feeling quite happy, quite peaceful, quite fulfilled. Uh, Nothing much has happened. No one has told you that you're handsome or beautiful or brilliant. No one's given you an increase in salary. You're just sitting there and breathing. But you're also not as victimized, not as attached to your preoccupations. It's a kind of holiday. Give it a rest, right? We have that in the culture, that phrase. And you begin to see that just to simply sit and breathe and to know it uh, can become an extraordinary gift because as you develop it, you can do that whenever you want to. After a while, it becomes a skill. You learn how to do it. If you practice it, you'll learn how to do it. And you can drop into that place. The mind becomes much more concentrated. And there are times in life when it's just very helpful to have that ability to get concentrated and to drop into that place of immense peace and refreshment. It's a kind of nourishment. And then we're more able to face the world again. Even the Buddha, after enlightenment, would go on retreats. There's one uh, rather famous exchange where he was gone for a while. I think it was about a month or more. And when they came back, I said, where were you? And he was practicing Anapanasati, which is what you've been practicing. That's the Pali name for it, uh, mindfulness of breathing. Um, And he was just practicing the not spilling any oil part of our practice, just becoming deeply absorbed in the breathing. And they said, well, why do you have to do that? I mean, you're already enlightened. And he said, I don't have to do it. It's just a wonderful way to live. It's another nice way to be alive. It's not that you want to spend your life doing that, but it's another option and not a small one. So the mind becomes more concentrated. It has access to a kind of energy and peace that it didn't have before. Very important 
that this kind of fulfillment comes from within you. Can you see some of the significance of that? So much of our life is spent trying to get happiness from outside. It's as if we have this huge hole inside of ourselves. We feel depleted or incomplete. And uh, we run around, the ancients use the image of a beggar's bowl, only what we're begging for is approval from other people. Please tell me I'm handsome, I'm okay, I'm beautiful, I'm a wonderful person, I'm a great meditation teacher, I'm a terrific yogi, please tell me that. Okay, you are. Okay, now I feel fine. But you're also, the reason you feel fine is because you needed someone else to tell you that. Does that really last long? And how stable is that? A simple thing like learning how to drop into peace through conscious breathing enables us to have a source of joy and fulfillment that has nothing to do with the weather or whether people love us or hate us or whether we're rich or poor or even sick or healthy. That's an advantage. That's a help in life. It's not wisdom, it's not liberation, but it's also not trivial. The Buddha talks about this over and over in the, in the teachings. In Thailand, they talk about it as um, without this capacity to concentrate and calm the mind, it's as if you're a homeless person. It means you're vulnerable to, all, to the weather, hot and cold and rain. You have no shelter. Your belongings are vulnerable. It's difficult to be alive that way. And as the mind becomes more stable, more calm, more concentrated, they liken that to having a house made of bamboo and then of brick and so forth, more stable, so that we have a place where we can seek a certain protection from the heat, from the rain, and even from other people. Other things that perhaps you're learning is something that all of us, I think, hear about in any spiritual circles, the beauty of simplicity. We hear it a lot, I think, and uh, here's one very concrete example of it. Isn't that interesting? Just by sitting and observing breathing, and in the process, letting all the cares of the day go, letting all the ambitions and uh, projects go, letting uh, all the, let's say, uh, lack of fulfillment from the past go, or resentments from the past go, just to be, just to sit and breathe, because that's what it is. We learn that sometimes simple things are very beautiful, and it's not just a a righteous slogan. And I would say in our age, which has become extraordinarily complex, it's helpful to have a few simple things around. Often the problems we have are the complexity itself. The way everything has been organized fast and a lot of it. Running here, running there, gathering this, pushing this button, pushing that button, bells ringing, all kinds of things going on. 
And then we look for medicine to kind of help us feel better about all this complexity. And we seek out complex solutions. It might be that simplicity is closer to the answer. Not that you have to change how you're living unless you want to. But it's moving in the direction of the real simplicity, of course, which is inward. It's not about how many clothes you have or how many meals you eat or uh, outward displays of simplicity or poverty. It's to become simple inside. So a concentrated mind is not a small thing. It's also useful for healing. Uh, we don't talk about that so much, but it, it is also mentioned here and there in the Buddha's teachings. The uh, quality of the breathing improves as it becomes more conscious. And the breath is a, an extraordinarily important and underrated aspect or element in human health. Also a concentrated mind when directed to parts of the body that are in pain or in suffering, that are uh, troubled, ill, it can be healing. It has a certain amount of healing power. It's not mentioned a lot because there's a concern that we'll get distracted from the real purpose of the practice, which is wisdom and liberation. So now we're getting to, granted we're improving a little bit, our ability to move through the castle, the palace, without spilling oil. Now, um, can we use that capacity to pay attention? And if you keep doing this, you'll be able to. You'll improve your ability to do this. Can we use it now for what? It's, um, to me, Finally, this whole insight meditation with all the books and buildings and forms and some of the ceremonies and rituals, it boils down to self-knowledge. Do we understand ourselves or not? If we don't understand ourselves, we are doomed to suffer a lot. The degree to which we understand ourselves, there'll be less suffering. For some, perhaps none. And this is not uh, an exclusive concern only to the, uh, unique to the Buddha. I think uh, we know from all cultures the value of self-knowledge. Know thyself in the West. You see it in so many university buildings, how important it is. One or another quotes about know thyself. Socrates said, a life unexamined is a life not worth having been lived. And yet, <clears throat> there don't seem to be long lines of people queuing up to do this know thyself stuff. We all approve of it, but then we point to someone else to do it. And then they become symbolic, maybe a teacher, and then we get some indirect fulfillment from seeing that they're doing it, or we think they're doing it. What's different about the Buddha's teaching is that in addition to valuing something that everyone values over and above ignorance, 
which is ignoring, is that the Buddha left very common sense, intelligent methods for us to practice with. Also, seemed, he seemed to have an extraordinarily realistic understanding of how difficult it is to be a human being and how reluctant we are to really take a look at ourselves. Apparently it's the most difficult thing in the world to do, judged on it by results. I mean, we always say that our culture has a lot to do with the Greeks, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, but know thyself is not something that seems to have clearly impressed itself on our culture or life wouldn't look the way it does. We wouldn't be living the way we live. It's not possible. So it seems to be an ideal and for the most part an unrealized one. Um, some time ago, someone told me about a, a research study about the most frequently used phrases in movies. They did a study of many, many films and they wanted to find out what are the, what's the language that's used in films most. And the, the phrase that won was, top one was, let's get out of here. And I started watching, you know, movies and TV, and it's extraordinary how much of it has to do with let's get out of here. <laughs> People are always running away from something and running towards something, running away from something horrible towards something fantastic. And so on the outer level, of course, you see it, let's get out of here. Uh, you see it with bumper stickers. I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be playing tennis. I'd rather be in Woods Hole. I'd rather be... Uh, anything but where I am. You don't see bumper stickers on, I'd rather be exactly where I am. <laughs> and the way we treat each other in traffic, we're in a hurry. We're always trying to get from here to there. And then when we get to there, it becomes here. That's the problem. So then we got another here to get to another there. If we're only that, it would be humorous and inconvenient. But I think it's also an expression of, uh, and more for our purposes, of inner life as well. Let's get out of here is also true of what's happening to us. It seems like at least one of the greatest fears that we have for all I know, it's the greatest, but it's certainly got to be one of the greatest fears that we have, is we're afraid of the content of our own mind. We'll do anything to get away from the content of our own mind. We'll go to the moon. We'll spend hours absorbed in all kinds of incredible projects. We'll display immense brilliance in devising this, that, and the other. And yet, as a race, the human race, that is, we don't seem to have learned how to live together. We don't seem to have attained any peace or very much wisdom or maturity. We don't know how to live on this potentially beautiful planet at all. And it's at least plausible that part of the reason for that is that we are 
truly undeveloped, underdeveloped. And that comes from not knowing ourselves. We're immature. And so our starting point is, I'm not saying this to chide any of us, but rather to at least point to the possibility that this is our predicament. The second part of the practice is a head-on collision with let's get out of here. It's, we speak in very gentle terms, allowing, surrender, permit, but it's ruthless. This teaching is quite ruthless because what we're saying over and over and over, if you come back here, you'll hear it, is learn how to be with what's there. Well, what's there is not necessarily what you want to be there. It's the content of your mind, that which we've perhaps become brilliant in avoiding in all kinds of ways. When everything else fails, sleep. And our practice is to equip ourselves. In other words, we're, that's part of, the, I think, the beauty of the Buddha's teaching. He's not just saying, know thyself. There's a realistic understanding of how difficult it is to do that and how much resistance we have to doing that. And that's why, in a certain sense, forms like this have to be invented, I think. Look at what we have to go through to take a look at ourselves. We've all got to drive here, agree to be quiet, live together in in ways where a lot of inconvenience, you can't shower when you want to, and you have to be, you uh, can't look at each other and uh, sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk. and all kinds of other things. It seems like an elaborate form to kind of coax us, to guide us, but to firmly hold us into place if you're willing to surrender to this form to help us finally settle down and do the work of self-knowing. Pretty realistic. We won't do it alone. Okay, then we'll get a bunch of friends for you. 99 other ones. We'll cart them in over here, bust them here. And we'll all be here together, supporting each other. It's a lot easier. Well, but make sure you don't get all caught up in these friends and forget why you came here. And so it's an unusual group, a retreat setting like this. We're alone, and we're also together, very much alone and together. Both are strong, really intense. The together is to help us really come to know ourselves. No one can do it for you or for me. No one. The Buddha made it very clear that he couldn't. If he couldn't, do you think Sarah and I can? I don't think so. No one can. That's something that's uniquely your job. And it's beautiful. It's asking us to accept responsibility for being a full human, to grow up to accept the challenge of uh, living consciously, to understand what does it mean to be alive? All the cliches, who am I? To breathe life into who am I? And so this form is designed to launch us. But of course, the the journey of self-knowing is not limited to any place like IMS or any particular cultural agreement like silence or vegetarian meals. It doesn't have anything to do with that, finally. It has to do with (coughs) 
our willingness to look, to pay attention, and to learn from what we see and hear, and then to correct our behavior, to correct our life from that learning. And as you do even a little bit of it, I think you may find is, is a wonderful kind of learning that awaits you. There's a whole inner world that's unexplored. I remember uh, the cover of either Newsweek or Time a number of years ago, something about exploring under seas, you know, with new technology we can begin to explore the oceans. And it said the last frontier, the ocean. I think there's another one. I think we know less about it than we know about the ocean. And it's ourselves. We're an unknown continent. You might say, well, that's extreme. He's exaggerating. I know myself. In certain ways, of course. But not the way the practice is designed to help us do it. This is not leaving anything to chance. This is like if you want to climb a mountain, you should be in shape and have good boots and clothing and a good tent and etc. and a good guide and so forth. Guides. We're learning to calm and concentrate the mind. We're learning to get our house in order. If you want to call that ethics, you can call it that, the precepts. The precepts are not limited to IMS when you go home. Uh, after all, what are the precepts? It's just a minimum requirements for civilized living. It's just intelligent to not kill, lie, steal, and so forth. Because when we do those things, they don't work. They bring suffering for us all. And then we're all stuck in this misery together. So self-knowing, of course, is finally the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's in the living. If you say you know yourself, but you can only be in a, uh, in a if you're like a hothouse plant, that isn't, doesn't sound so attractive to me. So we're being equipped just to calm and concentrate the mind, the project we've been working on since Friday night. We'll put you in a position, if not immediately, you'll have to take this on faith. If you practice it, you will have available a resource that you don't have now. So that uh, when the practice is opened up, and we'll begin to do that tomorrow in the sitting after breakfast, and the content of the mind begins to reveal itself, because if you just sit and do nothing, and that's what we're going to learn how to do, just sit there and breathe and be available to whatever turns up, well, at least some of what turns up is the content that we're afraid of. It will all, it's an invitation for it to come to the surface. But we're learning how to not be afraid of fear, of loneliness, of anger, of anything. Even more positively, we're learning how to befriend, how to welcome whatever turns up. It's a way of, in getting to know yourself, you're reconciling yourself with yourself. It's a way of ending the civil war that's going on right now between you and you. And I don't know you, but if you are human, there's a good chance that what I just said is correct. A lot of divisiveness and struggle, inner struggle, and one part versus another part, and fragmentation. Tiring, use of energy. 
So now we know there's a form available and you can come back to here or other places that are set up to help you. And we're training the mind so that it isn't just romantic and sentimental about self-knowing, but actually is fit to be able to take a look at what is in front of it. Think about it this way. If you can envision or even imagine your mind as being unwavering in its ability to pay attention, what we're learning how to do on the breath is something that we eventually can transfer to whatever we want to attend to. It's not limited to the breathing. So the question would be, can we put our attention on what we want to put our attention on for as long as we want to keep it there? Now, if you could do that, could you see what an incredible asset that is in life? The Buddha was known as somebody who mastered come what may seeing. Or as everything's welcome. His heart became so big that there was no element in consciousness that was banned or dreaded. Or if there was dread, then that's welcome too. That's what we're learning, how to make a larger space. Of course, that larger space turns out to be us. And we're slowly but surely preparing ourselves, developing ourselves so that uh, we can move through the palace. The palace now, of course, is us. Come to understand the nature of the body. Come to understand our emotional life. Come to understand all of our likes and dislikes, our fears. In short, what we think of as being me. And as we do, we find that that takes us deeper to another dimension of living that's here right now, it's available. But we're not in touch with it very much, if at all. As a step in moving towards this learning how to bring our life into focus, just being able to bring the breath into focus is not enough. When you're following the breath, and I know we've mentioned this, but I'd like to make it explicit. If anything repeatedly takes your attention away from the breathing over and over again, and it could be anything, it's become problematic. to get some experience in being mindful of uh, aspects of consciousness that are other than the breath. Give it a few moments attention. Let's say your knee is starting to hurt as mine is right now. And you're sitting and trying to keep movement to a minimum. But it, over and over again you find your attention taken from the breathing because of the discomfort. Uh, or sometimes there's restlessness. There was some in the, in the hall in the last sitting. Uh, don't try to steamroller over the restlessness and, uh, or tighten up your jaw and cope with the pain. 
but rather open the field of attention so that you experience what we call pain, that you experience the tremendous resistance we have towards it, how much we hate feeling discomfort, so that you feel the restlessness. Little by little, start to learn how to become comfortable with discomfort. It's a big step towards freedom. We're not trying to make you suffer more than you already are. It's just that now we're trying to learn how to... We're extending the field so you get a little bit of experience during this very short weekend. There's really not a lot of time. But we'd like you to come away from here not only knowing that you have conscious breathing as a resource, but that the practice is much more than that. It includes it. That the conscious breathing, in a sense, is the our awareness can be grounded in the breathing. And with the strength of that awareness, uh, we can come to get to know the full life of the palace, everything that's going on, and give a wonderful report to the king. Turns out the king is you and me, or queen. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.